If the wider community had that same philosophy, we would see some different things going on in our world. There's no delineation between the secular and the sacred. When it comes to life, they're all intertwined. We bring our whole selves to God. We bring all of it to God. If we believe that God is all seeing and all knowing, then why would we leave a building or a piece of property, a real estate, and then leave God there? No, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. So he sees everything we're doing anyway. So you might as well worship God wherever you are. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's need. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Tapper, and I'm an associate for resource consulting out of our central Indiana office. I'm joined today by my colleague, Shelly Riggs-Jordan, who is the Southeast Director. Welcome, Shelly. It's good to have you here. Thanks, Ben. It's good to be here with you. Shelly, today we did an interview that focused on worship, kind of the ins and outs of worship, particularly from a large African-American congregational context. And I'm wondering, you know, you do resource consulting in cases with congregations day in and day out like I do. So as you're interacting with congregational leaders and pastors, how has this theme of worship come up for you in your work? You know, I think especially since the pandemic, the theme of worship has really centered on How do we do corporate worship well at a distance? How do we live stream? How do we do Facebook Live? I think a lot of congregations jumped in a deep end of a pool that they've been circling but never been in. And so I think rather than, I haven't been seeing a lot of cases with music or those kinds of things, more how do we use technology to keep our congregation connected at a point where we can't right now be together in person. How about for you? What are you seeing? Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of the same things, actually. People wondering about how to use technology to keep congregations connected. Occasionally, I will see congregations wanting, you know, very specific technical kind of fixes, you know, folks looking for soundboards, wanting advice on which soundboard is better, what quality of board do they actually need, advice on software they might use to edit the audio. But by and large, they're pretty technical fixes. And especially during the pandemic, folks really wondering, okay, how do we even do this thing that we have always called worship together when we can't always gather in person? So it's definitely shifted the conversation, I would say for sure. Yeah. The demographics of the region that you serve, Southeast Indiana, are different than at least large portions of Central Indiana. And so I'm wondering if there are unique challenges or opportunities that you're noticing congregations are facing in your region. I think in my region, there are a lot of small rural 
congregations, aging congregations. And so I think a lot of them are wanting to stay connected, wanting to use tech, but have a generation of people who feel overwhelmed by tech. Mm -hmm. And so it's been kind of cool watching them hook into if they have younger folks in the congregation, which, you know, sometimes younger is 50, (laughs) sometimes younger is actual young adult, but watching new relationships form out of necessity. And then they find that they're really great relationships that they're grateful for. So I think for a lot of congregations in my region, it's just that we're aging, we're small. How do we afford technology? How do we get people who know how to do it, or at least know enough to help us figure this out? So those are the kind of issues I see more down in this area in the Southeast part of the state. Has any of that started to shift Well, I guess how has that shifted as folks have gotten back into more communal type worship, at least in part? You know, there's a lot of congregations that are just now shifting back into communal. And so a lot of the challenges I hear about now are, you know, we have people who aren't comfortable coming back yet and we still want to include them. But we also have folks who are in person and we want it to be a good experience for them. And we're a very small staff. If they even have paid staff, how do we do in-person and online well at the same time? So it's kind of shifting into more of that. People are asking about hybrid worship. And we used to use the word hybrid worship to mean using contemporary and hymns at the same time. But now we have this concept of hybrid as in-person and online at the same time and wanting to figure out how to do that well. Those are more kind of the questions I'm getting now. And people who have been using tech long enough and they have a handle on the basics, now they're like, okay, what's the next step? What's the next level? You know, we're ready for more, but we don't know what. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting when people kind of get a glimpse of what's possible and then have that hunger for new imagination. I think that's really cool. Yeah, and that people are understanding that you can be connected online, Mm -hmm. that there is a element of community that I think people of my generation and older may be kind of dismissed a little bit as artificial because growing up, everything online was artificial, but I think it's become a real form of community for a whole generation of people. And it gave other generations a glimpse into that community and what really could be in that format, which has been, I think, a really cool thing. Yeah. A glimpse of what could be. That's a thought right there. (laughs) The other thing I think that's important to mention is that in the course of this conversation and this interview, we use the phrase worship to mean something very specific, right? So we recognize that in a lot of contexts, worship is used to describe pretty much every facet of congregational life or every facet of a particular religious service, let's say. So you might view from the time someone walks into the front doors to the time they leave a few hours later as worship service itself, whereas in other contexts, worship speaks to the musical kind of celebration, the collective musical exploration of praise and worship. And so for the purposes of this particular interview, we are going to kind of utilize the latter understanding of worship. We'll touch on what it means like to talk about worship more broadly in terms of entire service. But really, when we're talking with John, we're going to be thinking about the music. We're going to be thinking about what it means as a music leader or a worship leader to keep a service going, to connect the music with the sermon, with the other parts of the service. And so just so you all know, that's what we're talking about generally when we use the phrase worship during this interview. Good clarification. So we won't keep y'all waiting. We have a a great interview with John Ray. And so without further ado, here is John. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am Ben Tapper, an associate for resource consulting here in our central Indiana office. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Shelley Riggs-Jordan, who is our Southeast director. Hey, Shelley. Hey, Ben. It's good to be here with you. Great to have you. And our guest today is none other than the Reverend John Ray Jr., who is the Minister of Worship, Arts, and Media at Light of the World Christian Church here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And John's been in that role for about 14 years now. We're so excited to have you here, John. Welcome. Hey, Ben and Shelley. It's so good to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're excited to have this conversation. You know, as you know, we're doing a series on worship for season three of this podcast. And so, you know, we thought, who better to have to talk about worship than you? I mean, you've been doing this work for well over a decade in different contexts. And yeah, I just think you're going to have so much to add to this conversation. So we're excited that we get to talk to you this morning. Sounds good. So to kick things off, John, wondering in your tradition and specifically the congregation that you serve, how do y'all think and talk about worship? What is worship and when does it happen during your service? Well, that's an interesting question for me because we tend to think of worship in a holistic manner. So worship never ends. Our life is a worship to God. We really try to bring all aspects of our lives into worship. I mean, that's what I've been taught all of my life is that, you know, I know some people feel that worship only happens in the building, but the pandemic has helped us with that, to learn (laughs) that worship can take place wherever you call on the Spirit of the Lord and He is present and God is present. So, Mm. I mean, if you had to say, you know, when does worship start? Our whole service, I mean, the thing I like about Light of the World was before I even came here, There was such an air of reverence when I first walked through the doors as a candidate for the position I'm in. You just walked through the doors and you felt like you were in a different space because of the prayers that were going up and the reverence that the people had in the sanctuary. It's just, and the music was playing. It was just a beautiful scene. So worship starts. I can't say when worship starts, babe, because it's ongoing. So can you say more? Yeah. So, you know, I'm aware that in different traditions, they conceptualize worship differently. So, you know, growing up in like a Church of God denomination and congregation, I thought of worship explicitly as the music that took place before the pastor got up and preached. That was kind of how I understood how we talked about worship. When I went to a Mennonite service, however, they spoke about worship and they meant everything that happened as soon as I walked in the doors on Sunday morning to the time I left. And so it was just this kind of like expansion of how I was thinking and talking about worship. And so I'm wondering, you know, in your context, when y'all talk about worship, when you talk about being a minister of worship arts, what does that actually mean for your context and your congregation? So, yeah, actually, you know, I understand the tradition in several different ways. We would call worship you know, the music, we would say, you know, that's worship, the acts of reverence, the participation, the bowing down, just all of that is a part of what we do call worship. But worship is from the time we walk in to the time we leave to the time we get in our cars to the time we go home, we really consider it an ongoing holistic part of our lives. It doesn't matter if we're in the grocery store and the spirit hits us, if we're in the parking lot and the spirit, if you're driving your car or wherever we are, people in the tradition that I'm immersed in, 
their lives are really a testament of worship. It's just ongoing. But, you know, in just a pure service sense, any aspect of our service can lead to acts of worship. Mm. I've seen it start from the very opening words when there have been moments in our worship when just the words in the beginning of the service have led people to shout, dance, clap hands, music start. It's just incredible because of the way that we worship. So I hope that kind of gets at your question. I do know churches are Christian communities that kind of put worship as something that only happens in the building when the music's going on. And when they go home, it's just home. I do understand that. But the way that we are taught and the way that we are socialized in worship is a complete ongoing thing. Mm. I love that. I love that big picture view of worship. I'm What a gift to your congregation members, because I think sometimes as Christians, we think we're Christian when we walk in the door of the building and that's where everything happens. And then when we leave, there's a disconnect. But if you continually say to your folks, this is just the corporate aspect of worshiping together, there's a whole lifestyle, the way you choose to live, then it gives people permission, I think, to worship everywhere. I think it opens their lives to the Holy Spirit in a way that when we confine it to the building, it doesn't. So what a huge gift that is to your folks. Absolutely. You know, and if the wider community had that same philosophy, we would see some different things going on in our world. There's no delineation between the secular and the sacred when it comes to life. They're all intertwined. We bring our whole selves to God. We bring all of it to God. If we believe that God is all-seeing and all-knowing, then why would we leave a building or a piece of property, a real estate, and then leave God there? No, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. So he sees everything we're doing anyway. So you might as well worship God wherever you are. That is awesome. That statement you just made, there is no separation between the secular and the sacred. Can you push into that a little bit more? Because, wow, that's an amazing statement. Well, so, yeah, what I mean by that is, again, the holistic approach to worship. And, you know, in our worship services, you may hear a band may quote a secular song in their playing while we're worshiping. You may hear some secular references because we live in a secular world, but we're supposed to bring the sacred into the secular right? So we're not supposed to break ourselves in two. We're supposed to bring our whole self. So the secular parts of life, God desires to deal with us on a secular level as well as a sacred level. We don't want to be so heavenly bound that we're no earthly good. We just can't have our heads stuck in the clouds. So worship just continues throughout that. Yeah. So a way to help people understand We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Exactly. But you kind of redeem the world that for some reason has become like bad. Like the world is a terrible place, but the world is still a place that God created. And so what a way to give your folks permission to take who they are and interact in a world like we're supposed to. I mean, when you understand worship, it's all cultural and contextual anyway. And so all of the pieces of our culture, my worship will look different from other communities. And that helps to understand how we bring what we call secular into our sacred worship services. 
And speaking of that, the, the cultural context within which worship can take place, you have done more than served as a, a worship minister at this specific congregation, right? You have played and ministered in a variety of contexts. So I'm wondering, you know, before I launch into my question, if you can just give our audience an idea of the variety of experiences you have as a musician, as a leader, and as a worship minister that are informing your knowledge about this subject. So I started playing the piano in church when I was 10 years old. My father's a church musician, my mom's a church musician, and I started playing at the age of 10 and directing choir, teaching music, and that's been 47 years ago now. So I've been at this for a long time. Along the way, I've studied trumpet, piano, clarinet, other instruments. I've played in symphony orchestras, I've played in marching bands, I've played in mariachi bands. I played in bar bands, R&B. I had an R&B record out, video in the MTV era. Okay. I've toured Switzerland with gospel choirs. I've toured all over Europe with gospel choirs. Just, wow, I think, yeah, that's about the gamut of it. I mean, I've covered a wide range of musical experience. I've had a lot of musical experiences playing in dinner theaters, doing music for theatrical production. So, yeah, that's my background. I mean, and, and what a background. And I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say that you started at 10 and it's been 47 years since you started at 10? Started playing piano at five and I started directing choirs and playing in church every Sunday at the age of 10. Wow. And you've been doing that for 47 years. So this is like you in your mid to late 50s then. I'll be 57 this year. I swear, and I'm, my mind's blown, Shelley, because every time I talk to John, he's somehow older than I thought he was. Like, when I first met him, I was like, this dude's like 35, right? <laughs> in class, I learn he's older than I thought. I was like, okay, yeah, he's like in his early 40s, right? So this whole time, I'm thinking John's like 43. So when he said that number, I was like, Wait, either my what? math's off or John's math's off. He can't, no way. Like, I'm timeless, Ben. There you, you go. Clearly, <laughs> you're ageless, you're timeless. Like, it's, it's a mystery. I love it. <laughs> So how have those different experiences, I mean, not only in context, but different cultures, different places in the world, how do they shape the way that you approach your current role at what is one of the largest African-American congregations in the city? Hmm, That's a good question. I um, draw from all of my experiences in my work here at Light of the World and in the community. For instance, when we do concerts or major church productions, I'm able to bring in a lot of different skills from productions and the discipline from my training at Northwestern. So I just kind of bring all of it together and I lean heavily on the spirit, really. I just kind of listen for the spirit where the spirit is directing and all of these disciplines and experiences are in me. So it's kind of hard for me to put my finger on how it works. Mm. I just know that it all works together, hopefully for the good of whatever I'm trying to do. Yeah, I'm certain that it does. I'm certain that it works together for the good. I'm going to talk a lot and we're going to talk a lot about your specific role now, but I'm aware that's not the only hat you have worn while you've been in light of the world, right? And so as we're talking about worship, my hope is that we're able to, to speak about not only your experience kind of as the leader that you are now, but also your experience as the person singing on stage every morning or playing the piano in the background every morning, kind of bringing all those pieces in. And so if you, as you think about those different roles you played over the years, what would you say is one of the most common misconceptions you hear from congregants or other leaders about what it means to lead the worship experience at church? 
Well, that's a good question. It's a very interesting question for a lot of reasons. But the first thing that comes to mind is I don't think people really understand all of the time that is put into the worship services here at Lighters World or wherever worship leaders are working. I don't think people understand that I have a full-time job that is never ending. My weekends are not weekends because that's when we are the most busy. So all week is in preparation for Sundays. So we have worship planning meetings. We have tasks that have to be done to fulfill whatever the vision is out of worship planning. And all of that takes weeks and days and phone calls and emails. And it's a 24-7 thing. You know, it's just seven days a week sometimes. Now, one thing about church work is when it's really heavy, it's really heavy. And then you'll get a little grace period. Lord, to give us a few days to regroup. And then you're back at full speed. So one of the, the most common misconceptions I see is people say, well, what do you do? You know, wow. <laughs> and there's no way to explain it to them because when they're asking that question, they already have no context for what you're doing. Yep. Sometimes I think my sons don't think I have a job because <laughs> like, oh, you just get up there and do music. That's no, I'm a vocal coach. Um, I, I teach theology. I write music. I have to do pastoral care. I plan practices. I plan rehearsals. I plan events for the church. I have to pray for people. I visit people in the hospital. I send cards. I do all of these. You know, these are the things I have to study and prepare the music so that I can teach it. I have to pick the music. You know, all it's just ongoing. So all people normally see is, oh, you sing a few songs on Sunday. That's one of the most common misconceptions. Well, and the reason it sounds so good on Sunday is because you do all the other things leading up to it. It's all the background work that happens. So, yeah, that's probably one of the most common misconceptions. I think even people in my congregation really, they appreciate what we do, but they really don't understand how much goes into it. I think it's a testament to you and your musicians that... If you guys make it seem effortless up there, that's a really great thing. Amen. It's because of the hard work. It definitely would cover by the Holy Spirit. So mm. we don't count that out. So we always, you know, just submit ourselves to God and, and we do what we can and we ask God to do the rest. And that's what happens around here. But I think about how difficult it is now producing not only worship, you know, we're talking about primarily corporate worship in real estate at a specific location in sanctuary, but now the online services. Mm. So we're producing a whole online worship service of broadcast. I mean, it's similar to producing a 90 minute television show. If you, you know, really want to think about it, putting together this service that is going to be streamed to all the congregates and even to the world, it adds a whole new dimension to preparation, planning and producing worship. So. Are you doing that in addition to a Sunday morning in-person service? Not currently, but that's where we're moving toward because online worship is not going anywhere. There are going to be parishioners who are going to mainly get their worship online, even post-pandemic. I just believe there's going to be a group of people 
that have gotten to a place where they understand worship in the context of watching it on laptops and phones. And our culture is moving more and more towards that anyway. So the churches that are going to be successful are going to, going to offer both. They're going to continue with the online and continue with their in-person worship. Only time will tell how the pandemic has changed us. Yeah. So I guess my question to you then is, you are a finite person with skills and abilities, but a limited amount because you're human. How do you make space then for adding online plus the Sunday morning in person? Because, you know, that's a lot on a pastor. That's a lot of addition adding to. And I think a lot of pastors out there are wondering, how am I going to do that? So how do you foresee being able to do that and still have boundaries and energy left at the end of the week? Um, That's an excellent question. And we are working to answer those questions. One of the, the main things that we're looking at is to bring more people into the field of work, volunteers. We're looking at offering training which we've always done, but we're going to have to, you know, redouble our efforts after this pandemic. So we're going to really rely heavily on some volunteer help, which we always have when we recruit new people. We're looking at our staffing model to see where we need to expand, where we need to cut. We've gone through a total overhaul in our media department. We're replacing equipment. We're doing all of these things to get ready for post-pandemic worship, but it has to be done. Now, the thing is, on what level can you do it? You know, there is a very simple level that it can be done on. One camera, wide shot, put it on the internet. And churches will have to figure out what they can afford to do, how they want to do it, how they want to be presented, where they want to put their resources into media, because you basically you get what you pay for. If you want a dynamic online service, you need professionals that can have work with volunteers because the media landscape of all the technology just requires a different skill level that, you know, your average person doesn't have. So you have to you know, really figure out what it is you want to do with your online worship. Are you comfortable just with one shot or, you know, are you going to try to do an advanced service with multiple shots and great audio? You have to have great audio with online worship. You know, you have to have great video, of course, you know, but if you got video with terrible audio, it's just and to mix audio, as we're finding out today, audio is very troublesome. It's very picky. It's, you know, you have to really get the right people in place. So I'm praying for churches. We've gone through so many changes trying to make the change from our old system to the new system and to also be under the pressure of producing worship every week. But thank God we've not missed a week since the pandemic started. We've been on air and God has blessed us. I love that your answer is to make space for more people to have opportunity to join in. That's such a great answer. You had more than just that, but that's the part that really resonated with me. <laughs> that's the meat of it. And, you know, we have a new pastor here who is very good at drawing in new people. She has a fresh vision for the church. She's got fresh eyes and she is engaging people that have not been engaged in years. So, you know, there's a new vitality here at our church because of some of the leadership of the pastor, of our new pastor. 
Reverend Janae Pitts Murdoch, shout out to our pastor. Yes, shout out to Reverend Janae. For those that are listeners, you'll know she was a guest on our podcast as well. So if you want to hear more about her, check out season two, episode eight, Getting Schooled on Interim Ministry. John, you just made that plug so easy. I appreciate it. You can tell you work for me. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> you know, as we think about having good audio, having good video, you know, whether you're in person or watching online, I'm aware, and I've never led worship per se, but it seems to me that there can be this tension sometimes between wanting to have high quality audio or sound and wanting to be adaptable and approachable for those that are experiencing the music or the sound. So as a leader, how do you balance the tension, at least that, that I perceive? Maybe it's not even there, but if it is, how do you balance that tension? Mm. That's such a big question. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. Our particular worship space does not necessarily have perfect acoustics, nor do a lot of worship spaces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have a variety of levels of people's uh, tolerance for volume and different types of music. And, you know, we have a congregation that's, you know, from cradle to grave. I mean, it's just every age group is represented here. Some like it this way, some like it hot, some like it cold some mm -hmm. like it warm some like it you know it's just so trying to please everybody can never be my goal ultimately and not sound super spiritual but ultimately my goal and our goal in worship is for an audience of one we're all to create one great worship for god first so i direct all of my attention to this is for God, what is the best that we can do with the people that we have working here? There have been mornings where the snow has fallen so bad in Indy or the ice has fallen so bad that we might have two volunteers in media and, you know, people haven't shown up, but we just do the best to balance the tension and to balance the work so that we get great worship for God. And, you know, from time to time, people don't understand. They don't understand that we're not perfect. <laughs> and they make suggestions, but most of the time people are gracious. But every now and then you get people who just don't understand the level of difficulty it is to mix and manage sound and all of the pieces that go to worship to please them. It can't be to please that one person. Ultimately, it has to be to please God. So I hope that that kind of gets at what you're talking about, because there will always be tension on the types of music that is chosen, the type of worship style, because you have all kinds of people in the room. So the best thing is to, you know, direct it toward God and let God do the rest. I mean, that may sound to some people like a non-answer, but to me, it is the answer. Everything we do and everything that I teach my choirs and people that we work with media is our first audience is God. Because mm. if I'm trying to please Ben and I'm trying to please Shelly, I won't get anywhere. Mm. I won't get anywhere. I'll be stuck. And you'll lose your mind in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds like as a leader, then you probably have especially knowing your context. Once you've been in a space long enough, you have an idea of 
where kind of the acceptable levels of proficiency are and where that overlaps with the acceptable tolerance for variety a congregation has. And so you know kind of the boundaries of your sweet spot. And so what I think I'm hearing you say is once you know the boundaries of that sweet spot, then your goal, your kind of heart goal has to be to just worship, right? To please God, to produce something that is going to glorify God. But again, you got to be in that sweet spot. You can't be out here thinking you're pleasing God, but you know, trying out a brand new two or three songs every single week because you, you're probably going to lose people. Am I right in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there has to be some familiarity in worship so that people can participate. And ultimately, I'm constantly monitoring and taking in information as a worship leader. I'm reading the congregation. I'm feeling them. I'm saying, well, we're spontaneous in our worship. Let me say that. We have a liturgy. We have music playing. We have sermons planned, but it's all subject to change. Mm. So I'm constantly monitoring where we are in worship because there's a feeling, there is a presence in the room. There are times when I can tell people are really not engaged. Holiday weekends, you know, sometimes Christmas can be the most difficult time to get people to focus in on worship. Mm particularly the time between Thanksgiving and kind of moving into Christmas and people get into the whole hustle and bustle of Christmas. And sometimes they leave the worship aspect behind. So I'm constantly taking in information from media, from the screens, from the sound, from the people. And one shout can turn our worship service into something it was never planned to be on paper. Mm -hmm. We have a dynamic nature to our worship that changes the course. And we always end up getting everything done that we plan to do or that God had planned for us. There have been times in our worship where the preacher couldn't preach because the people were worshiping and would not let the spirit of worship go there have been many times when Pastor Janae first got here, I think it was one of our first weeks, we had a sermon series planned and we were ready to go. We had film clips and everything to go with this sermon series. And the music just went bananas and the people just worship and worship and worship. And she came in and she jumped in the worship and led the worship. And there was no sermon that day. Mm. She gave a few words that went along with, where everybody was at the time. So I'm constantly taking in information and ready to make a shift at any given moment. We make up songs on the spot. We jump into courses that we haven't rehearsed. We create music on the spot. We create the liturgy sometimes on the spot just by what the presence of the Lord is doing in the room. This is not done in a haphazard way. You would never know that these things were not planned. I was just thinking that. I was thinking, I don't want people listening to think that it's chaotic or, you know, just all of a sudden you're switching gears. It's because you're so well prepared and because your folks are so in tune with what that number one priority is, it gives you freedom and flexibility. And I think people, they need to know that. It's because you are so well prepared, you have freedom and flexibility and that's so cool that you pay attention and that you're willing to go off script if that's what needs to be. What a great thing. Absolutely. You know, just part of our cultural worship, we're constantly 
adjusting and moving with the spirit of the Lord. It's just a constant motion, a dance. Some people can't do that. You know, some people come in with, here are the boundaries and the borders and we have to stay in it. And so we have to shut everything down at this point so that we can move to the next thing. Yeah. And so you don't leave a lot of room for flexibility. But flexibility is scary for some people. I'm glad it's not scary for you. (laughs) Well, you know, improvising music is not a gift that everybody has. Yeah. I know some classical musicians who are just wonderful musicians, awesome musicians. But if it's not on the page, they are not going to play it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like there's two kinds of cooks in the world. People who have to stick to the recipe every single time or people who know the recipe and they're willing to experiment and see what other possibilities are out there. Absolutely. People are just wired differently. Absolutely. It's just, you know, it's whatever your context, your culture, your upbringing is. There's room for all of it. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. There's room for all of it. You know, I have respect for a Presbyterian liturgy or, you know, a Methodist liturgy that goes through. And everything is in this type of orderly fashion. And there's little room for any extra stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one way of doing it. Our way is just different in that. There are some Sundays where we go straight by the book, you know, and everybody's blessed the same. But there's those standout Sundays where sometimes it's a hush that will come over the room after a song has been sang or a word has been spoken. It's a quiet hush. And you may hear someone shout out from the back or someone just walk to the front of the church and just get on their knees. And you see floods of people just doing the same thing. Mm, That's a great picture. And so we don't say, go back to your seat. That's not on the paper. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, we don't have time for that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't come down here right now. Don't come down here right now. We have to do this other thing. No. Yeah. We make the adjustment and we have this thing called seamless worship. Everything we try to make, we make the transition seamless so that the worshiper is drawn into the experience. We come to experience worship, Mm -hmm. not to look at worship. We come as a communal experience all together. We experience worship. And then we leave and we say, man, we had a good time. We had a good time today. You know, as I hear you talk, I'm thinking about my own experience growing up. And that was very much the type of congregation that I grew up in. Like we would have services where the pastor didn't preach, right? Or where you'd have the musical service, the pastor would preach. And then we went into a whole other worship session after the pastor preached because the spirit moved, right? It was very fluid and flexible. And I'm wondering if sometimes there's just a difference in orientation, right? If maybe certain denominations or traditions, they view worship a bit more collectively, whereas I think there might be some individualism, at least in the tradition that I grew up in, where the focus was, yes, coming together collectively, but it was also about my own experience with God in that particular moment, right? And paying attention to it and responding to it. And sometimes we were all experiencing similar things. Other times... We were having different experiences, and that was okay because it was fluid, right? And and so I just wonder if certain traditions prioritize different aspects of what can go into worship, and that allows for kind of the fluidity and the difference that we're talking about today. I mean, truly, every congregation is different, and I'm speaking primarily from an African-American experience, but speaking on that in very general terms because 
no African-American congregations. We're not a monolithic group of worshipers. There are some churches that are very stringent about their order of worship. And then there are some that are more charismatic and dynamic, like what I'm explaining about Light of the World. There's value, there's purpose, there's place for all of that. And even in our dynamic worship services, I can't say that everyone is experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because when you get 900 people in a building, that's probably impossible (laughs) (laughs) for everybody. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but that's not likely that everybody is as into it. But there's a feeling that even if I'm not into it, I understand it. I support it. You know, some people can come to a worship service and I'm going to not say some people, I'm going to say even I've had times when it's been a struggle to be vulnerable in worship Mm -hmm. because of things that may be troubling me about life, even as a worship leader. And I have to work extra hard to put myself behind and go to what it is that God has called me to do. I have to deny myself, deny these being John the person and be John the worship leader, if that makes sense. Preachers don't always come to church wanting to preach. I mean, it's just... (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like, they have lives too. Yeah. I mean, sometimes a preacher needs to be preached too. Sometimes they need encouragement. They need prayer. They need hands laid on them at times. You know, they lose loved ones. They have disappointments. You know, they have setbacks. Yeah. So do the same thing with worship leaders, you know, and I never pretend to be a cheerleader for God. God doesn't need a cheerleader. (laughs) I just try to be what it is that God has called me to be and to lead his people in worship. So, that means that I try to bring my whole self into worship too and deal with deal with myself in worship as well. Your great answer makes me think Sunday is Sabbath for folks in our congregations. Sunday is not Sabbath for pastors. Even the most connected pastor, Sunday mornings are not for worship for you. So how do you find that space to get that renewal that our folks are seeking when they come on Sunday mornings? And how do you find the space to be fed? Because I think that's a big thing for pastors, because when you leave that part out and you start to disconnect from the very spirit that you are worshiping on Sunday morning, that's when folks get in trouble. So how do you find space for that? Great question. It's an ongoing thing. It's easier now with the preponderance of worship online. It's just it's easier now than it was even two years ago. I can get a word from some of my favorite preachers other than my pastor here to augment my spiritual life. But as far as in-person worship, I like to go places where people don't know me as a person who does music in a church and I'm not as familiar with the people, but I'm comfortable there and I can worship. I can sit in the back and nobody's going to ask us, me and my wife, my wife sings. And wherever we go, people want her to sing and they want <laughs> me to play. And But if we go to places where we're not really that familiar, 
we can sit and worship. So it's very important. You know, you have to keep up your own spiritual disciplines and, you know, your own study daily. You have to have accountability groups. You have to have people in your circle who know you, who are going to pray for you, who are going to tell you when you're wrong, who are going to keep you spiritually fit. You know, a friend of mine has a Bible study that he does with musicians from all over the world on Saturdays. You have to be a part of those types of groups. Sometimes you don't get what you need as a leader in the church by participating in the Bible studies necessarily at your church because everybody's looking at you as the leader. It's like, well, no, I just want to be in the class. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it's difficult. You have to really find other sources to for renewal, but it's very important. Oh, thanks for that. That's some great advice. Yeah. In continuing this theme of advice, as we wrap up, John, I'm wondering if you think about the great wisdom that you've accumulated over the decades that you've been doing this work. If a young uh, worship leader came to you who's in their mid to late 20s and they said, Reverend, uh, Reverend Ray, what advice do you have for me that will help ensure that I can do this work for the next two or three decades and do it well? What are the top two or three pieces of advice that you'd offer them? I would say, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, which is always the first thing that comes to mind in spiritual work, is to make sure that your own personal relationship with God is tight. You know, the gift will make room for itself. You have gifting, but you have to explore calling and gifting are two different things. So make sure if you feel you're called to do this work, first of all, because there are a lot of gifted people, but this work is for called people because the nuance of the job, the requirements of the job, the sacrifice that you have to make, it can't be for personal gain. It has to be for the building of the kingdom of God. So the first thing is to make sure that you're always constantly working on your relationship with God, period. Keep that first. Second, work on your skills. Learn new crafts. If you're a singer, learn how to play an instrument. If you're uh, an instrumentalist, learn how to play more instruments. Learn how to sing. Learn how to teach music. Learn how to write music. Sharpen your skills. Go to school. Go to a community college. If you don't know how to read music, go learn how to read music take a class, get online. I mean, the internet, you can, you can learn anything these days. <laughs> it's true. And you can, you can literally learn anything. I marvel at, you know, like my age, I'm 57. We didn't have computers when I was a kid. And I still am amazed sometimes if, if I want to look up some ridiculous fact, um, it <laughs> takes me two seconds on Google to get it. Yeah. Yes. And then confirm it with two or three, four, five other sources. It's so there's no excuse for not learning craft and be theologically sound, study Mm. theology. I went to seminary for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons was simply just a desire to understand more about theology, about church history, about church work as a minister of worship. I felt like it would only make my work better. It would make my work more enriching and I would be able to share from a variety of experiences as a result of going to seminary. I didn't go to seminary to be a preacher or a pastor per se, but I went to seminary to be better at the calling that God has me in right now. Some people don't understand that. It makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. 
seminaries where you and I connected, you know, and, and so I got to be in class with you and, and hear you wrestling, you know, with some of the things we're discussing and wondering how you then bring it back into your congregation as a minister. Is there like one or two ways in which you felt that unique experience of being in seminary shaped or what did it add to your work as the minister of worship arts and media? I learned a lot about church from of self-taught in a lot of ways and sermons because being a musician at 10 years old, I didn't get to go to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I didn't go to Sunday school. I was playing the piano in church and that's on me. You know, I learned some things, but I felt like once I got to a certain point, it made sense to go to seminary to be able to bring back some of that expertise. It's not always about music. I've taught Light of the World about Psalm 137, and I dug into how the people experienced God in captivity. Mm. And I was able to make a parallel between African-Americans' experience of being moved out of their homeland, stripped from their homeland, stripped from our homeland, and moved to this country, and being able to say, how do you sing the song of the Lord in this strange land? That's worship. How do we sing the song of the Lord in a place that continually makes us feel unwelcome or where we feel unwelcome as a people or we experience difficulty and loss at the hands of society? So it's hard to say any one thing. I've taught, I've preached on worship. We were talking about how the spirit has fallen in church, and then I believe it's Second Chronicles, when they brought the ark back in, the spirit fell so hard that, you know, they couldn't preach. So all of these t- types of things have kind of helped me, but it's made me a more well-rounded person going to seminary. You know, it enabled me to draw from some more disciplines when I'm teaching and working in the church, because I function in different ways here at Light of the World. I preach. I teach a Bible study. I have the honor of doing both of those things, as well as leading the worship. I'm responsible for five choirs, four dance ministries, drama ministry, media ministry. Yeah. And I also, like I say, I have the opportunity to preach two or three times a year at this church and other churches. So out of all of those things that I do, you know, seminaries help me in a lot of ways to be able to do that job better. Yeah. Thank you for your reflections today, John. If folks want to learn more about you, maybe find this, I think you said an R&B album that's out there somewhere. (laughs) How how can they connect with you and stay in touch and learn more about your work? Where should they find you? You can reach me at worship at lightoftheworld.org. And I'd be glad to love helping, mentoring, sharing my experience and strength and hope with musicians or whoever is drawn to anything I've said today. I hope I've been a help. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you, Shelly. Nice to meet you. I love this conversation.
What a rich interview and conversation with John. I'm so thankful we got to reconnect and hear his perspectives. But Shelly, what stood out to you from our conversation? I think the thing that stood out the most to me was when you asked Pastor John for kind of a clarification or a definitive idea of what constituted worship. And he kind of struggled to come up with a definition, not because he didn't know what it was, but because in his tradition, there is no line between secular and sacred. So the idea of worship only happening in a building in a corporate setting was almost foreign to him because it's this idea that my life is as holy and as worshipful when I'm at work in the secular setting as it needs to be when I'm in the building worshiping corporately with others. See, I can't even like, that concept is so foreign to me. I can't even like use the right words. But Mm. I just think that is such an amazing concept. The ramifications or the consequences or the possibilities from that kind of idea are transformative. And so for me, I just was really struck by that idea and kind of got caught there, which isn't a bad place to get stuck. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. And I wonder if there's a cultural element to that distinction. You know, I think about how integrated and purposeful the worship experience, the congregational experience, that community have been for black folks throughout history because African-American congregations have played integral roles in the liberation movement and the freedom movement in black communities. I think there's a way in which those lines of delineation haven't been there historically the same way maybe they have been for white congregations, for instance. And so it, it makes sense to me that that line between secular and sacred may not have been as clear, at least as John was thinking about it, as it might be for others that try to wrap their minds around it. And I think that's really cool. There's an integration that has taken place and I think continues to take place in those contexts that it's beautiful. And from a theological standpoint, I personally believe that that integration is just, like that's how I conceptualize the spirit anyway, right? There's an integration and the hard and fast, what is and what isn't, isn't really there. And so, yeah, I too was kind of struck by that and I thought it was really fascinating way to think about it. Well, it removes the boundaries. We almost, by saying worship happens in a building, we put barriers and parameters around an unlimited God. Mm. And by taking those spatial boundaries away, now all of a sudden I'm believing in and given my life to and have faith in this God that can move anywhere in the world, not just in this building. So I think that's amazing because then God truly goes with me. God is truly inside me. It's not just this experience in this, if I want to experience him, I have to go to this building. Or if I want to experience God, I have to go to this building. That's not true when you erase those lines between secular and sacred. Yeah. 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 And I think they're right. I think they're spot on. And if God goes with you and you're always in the presence of however you conceive of the divine, then how does that impact your actions? How does that impact how you treat your neighbor? How does that impact how you are when you come together with whomever you come together. I think, to your point, the ramifications of that idea are amazing. It decompartmentalizes my faith. Mm. And that, I think, is key to living a holy and fulfilling life in the sight of God. Yeah. 
Mm, I love that. One of the kind of more tangible, practical things that fascinated me about what John was talking about is when he mentioned just how much he pays attention during a worship service. Now, John is doing more than, you know, leading a band or, or leading a choir. Like he's paying attention to all the media that is happening and trying to make sure everything is integrated appropriately into the service. And he's doing that all week. But just the full scope of things that he's having to pay attention to and monitor during a service kind of blew my mind. And then when he started talking about the fluidity that can happen in his congregation, right? You might have a time where worship, again, by that I mean like the literal experience of singing (laughs) together, where worship is so profound that it moves beyond the time constraints that were allotted for in the service and so that the pastor won't even get to preach. Right. Or the worship would be so transformative that it changes what the pastor is going to say. Again, that's fluidity that I grew up with. And so it's kind of familiar to me, but it's not common in a lot of traditions. And so just speaking to that, he didn't when he was talking about it, he wasn't you know, like frustrated by it. He wasn't like this is just clearly how life plays out right in their congregation and in a worship experience. You don't know what's going to happen to some degree. And I can imagine that would freak some people out. But I also <laughs> that fluidity of the spirit feels beautiful and it felt cool to hear him articulate that yeah in the traditions that i'm from that would freak people out yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. hey pastor it's been 20 minutes um i think you need to stop topping sure. now yeah. you know we're on to the next thing yeah. um and i think there's a place for that too but i think yeah absolutely it was cool to hear him talk about the responsiveness to the spirit and allowing space for things to change. And for me, what struck me about that is how well-prepared he has to be. Mm. Like if you're just doing it off your cuff, you're not going to feel comfortable moving and changing. But because he's so well-prepared week after week, he has the space to say, hey, we can do this a little bit different and to still do it really well. I think it speaks to how talented and how hard he works. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were there any other things that surprised you as you were kind of listening or in the midst of the conversation? I thought it was incredible that he's been in the same congregation for so long. Mm -hmm. A lot of pastors don't have that privilege. And there's something about walking with the same people week after week, year after year, and deeply knowing them and their story. That's a real gift. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that a lot of pastors get that. So I was super excited to hear him talk about the longevity in the environment that he's in, in the congregation that he's in. Yeah, it's definitely a gift for sure. You know, I think this comes with longevity, but hearing him talk about the different hats that he wears Mm -hmm. really spoke to me. And part of that is his longevity, but part of it, I think, you know, is just the nature of doing that kind of work in a congregation. When you, you know, a worship leader isn't only responsible for playing music on Sunday mornings, right? Right. They're responsible for getting the team together in other congregations, maybe even smaller congregations or larger congregations too. I guess it just depends. But they could be responsible for leading a Bible study, for leading a small group. I mean, there are many elements of congregational life that might also fall under the purview of someone doing worship. And so it was nice to hear him articulate that. And I think he even said that he is also a teacher, right? He's also Mm -hmm. a theologian. And John and I met in seminary. That's where I know him from. And so... I think that stood out to me because it was a reminder for folks doing that work or maybe for folks looking to hire someone to do that work, that you're not just looking for one singular skill set all the time, right? There are different hats that are going to have to be worn. And so you got to pay attention to the fullness of skills that someone's bringing into that role so that you know where they might best be suited to plug in at. That's a great point. Yeah. Ministry is a different kind of animal. (laughs) Yes. So it's good when people recognize, you know, it's hard work, but it's very fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well said. Transitioning <laughs> into the resource section, though, Shelley, were there any resources that you identified that you felt really spoke to the conversation that we were able to have with John today? Yeah, I found a couple of web resources. One is called Worship Enrich. And it's from an Anglican church music director, and it takes things that people have done in the past and things that we do now and maybe gives space for things that could come in the future when it comes to that corporate worship experience. So it's not really about taking worship beyond the walls of your congregation, but it's about doing that corporate worship really well and allowing folks to be creative and using the past to help create new things for the future. So it's uh, worship enrich. Shelley, that sounds like a really good resource. And I'm wondering if there are particular types of congregations that you think might utilize it more effectively. You know, I think anybody that has kind of a liturgy or prayer time or I think it might be good for Lent. I think it might be good for Advent. I know that especially pastors who have long pastorates, you know, it's the same story every year, but you want to tell it differently every year because you know it's going to hit somebody a certain way. And so I think these kinds of websites are really good to help maybe somebody who's told the story 20 times find a new way to tell the story. So yeah, I think it would be good for a lot of people. Anglican tends to be a little more high church, but I can see like the prayers and that kind of stuff working for everybody. You might just have to tweak it a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. The resource that I want to bring today is called the Worship Design Studio. And this is meant to be kind of a clearinghouse of practical tips and advice from experts that are doing worship week in and week out. So you'll find how-to videos, you'll find uh, Q&As, you'll find special event webinars and online trainings, just a lot of information from other experts and worship leaders that are designed to help make the life of people planning worship week in and week out a little bit easier. It's an online social community. I think they have their own app now, and you can access all the material for an annual membership or subscription fee. So it's Worship Design Studio. It's on the CRG. I think check it out. It's got a lot of information that worship leaders will find useful. That sounds like a really great resource for folks. I mean, yeah, I think it is. Anytime you can get a clearinghouse of content and information with, I think, training in addition, it's just there's going to be something in there for someone, you know, and I think that's beneficial. Yes, most definitely. Did you have another one you were going to bring? The other one I was looking at is called Prayerscapes, and it also is a web resource. And it's a group of Christian musicians and dramatic leaders and worship creators, and it's got videos and just things that you can use in worship, artwork. It's got stuff for kids, music. I know that to kind of have something in the background when folks are coming in or if you're you know, leading people through communion time and you want something different— This just looks like one of those places that you could go and find content to help you create something really cool in a corporate worship service. Thank you for bringing that, Shelly. It sounds like a a wonderful resource. And as a reminder to our audience, this resource segment is just designed to give you a, a sampling of resources that tie into the interview itself. And you can find even more resources on our online platform, thecrg.org, that is T-H-E-C-R-G.org. You can also learn more about the Center for Congregations at centerforcongregations.org. 
We hope that you will take the time to follow us on social media. You can do that on Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations. We post information about upcoming podcast episodes and interviews, resources that you might find interesting, and highlight successes of congregations, particularly Indiana congregations. And so be sure to follow us on social media so you don't miss any of that content. And as always, we want you to leave us a rating and review. So if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, leave us that five-star rating and review. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content. And if you think it's meaningful, they probably will too. So leave us that five-star rating so others can find this content. None of this would be possible without the generous funding of the Lilly Endowment. So we just want to offer our thanks to the endowment for making works like this and interviews like this possible. Shelly, I don't know about you, but I had a good time today. I hope that you did too. And we should do this again sometimes. We should do this again sometime. I learned something and I got to talk to some really cool folks. So yes, that's a good day in my book. I agree. That's a good day. Thank you, Shelly. Thanks, Ben. We'll see y'all later. All right. Bye.